0: Welcome to the third episode of Political Journeys. This is a podcast which takes you on a journey to meet the next parliamentarians, the next leaders of our country. I'm Ryan Henson. And I'm Stuart Harper.
1: We've got a particularly special guest today. Russian Kotecha is Global Head of Policy at the Open Data Institute but alongside her day job has a raft of other appointments and other roles. She's deputy chair of the Social Mobility Commission, head of engagement for women to win, advisory board member for the Conservative Friends of International Development, the Conservative Friends of the Environment, the Coalition for Global Prosperity, and a board member at the John Smith Institute. She's written for publications and think tanks as diverse as the Times, the Centre for Policy Studies, and Huffington Post and regularly speaks at policy conferences with a bachelor's degree in economics from Cambridge it's fantastic to have resh on the podcast this week because i know how much that she's going to contribute to us so resh welcome it's good well, thank to have you, you with so us. much
2: for having me i listened to the first two episodes and i'm very excited to be number 3
1: well, it's it's fantastic to to have you with us so can i start by asking you what what first what first spoke to you about wanting to do something more than just uh, than just in private sector and going out because you've you've studied at the at some of the um you've studied really at a high level you could have gone and done anything what what made you want to to go into public service
2: so uh, growing up it was always c- kind of brought to us at home by our parents that public service. In our culture, we call it SEVA. Service to others is a really important part of the work we do. So from the time I was really little, we talked about serving community, serving other people, um, recognizing how privileged we are to live here and to have um, fortunate lives and to make sure we give back. And I never really knew how I would do that. I just knew it was something I wanted to do. So I read economics at Cambridge because I loved economics and I loved economic and financial policy, but I knew I wouldn't go into the private sector from there. And I'm of Indian origin, but my parents grew up in East Africa. So my dad was born in Kenya, in um, Nairobi. My mom was born in Omduran in Sudan, and they both lived there until they were teenagers and then they came to the UK. So I've always felt an affinity with thinking about development issues, both in East Africa and in India. And When I was at Cambridge, I specialised in both development economics and behavioural economics. I always had this deep fascination with how we could use things like nudge theory um, and development economics to improve people's lives in the UK, but also internationally. It just so happened I graduated in 2010, um, you know, kind of real peak of the financial crisis while I was at university. Um, And... I was torn between wanting to do something to support financial services in the UK from a kind of governmental uh, angle um, or between doing development economics. But it turns out that um, being highly allergic to insect bites doesn't really make yeah, one yeah. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't yeah. really make me suitable to actually work out um, in the field. So I looked at jobs at the F. SA back then, Financial Services Authority, because they did secondments to the IMF and the World Bank. And I thought, great, I can use my economics knowledge, learn about financial services, and then second to the IMF or the World Bank. And in my naive way of thinking, I thought, well, that was my career then sorted, and I'd be senior at the IMF before you know it, or the World Bank and help fix all the world's problems. Um, And suffice to say, that's not quite how it worked out. But that's definitely the start. That's how I'll win, rather rather
1: uh, rather than anything else. I did an economics degree as well, so we won't compare transcripts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure. Not I'll, my well, sake. because I, I'm absolutely convinced I, I would come off worse, um, but that's that's a really that's a really clear grounding. You you clearly had an idea that you wanted to do uh, something in the public realm, um, but what what made you say, well, do you know where the, the thing I can contribute most to is by going into parliament?
2: So I, I didn't actually say that to myself ever. I was in uh, at the FSA almost two years, and we were going through such a period of turmoil. The coalition government in the early years, David Cameron, had talked about um, breaking up the FSA to create the FCA and the PRA. I had five managers in one year, four of whom were already on their notice period, and I think if I'd been there at a different time, I would have learned a lot. But it just got to the point where I thought, I don't feel I've developed enough, and I still have this passion for development economics, They'd frozen secondments um, at the FCA, and I, I never really wanted to do uh, pure financial regulation. So I thought, and I've had a very early life crisis, and thought this is it, and just quit my job. And I'd save very hard. I'm the Indian daughter of two accountants, so I'd always, you know, known I had to save. So I was in a position where I could take some time. So I networked. Um, Mark Fletcher, now the MP for Bolsover, uh, introduced me to an organisation called the Conservative Friends of International Development. Um, Anne Jenkin, Baroness Jenkins. Uh, is uh, the co the founder of it and was at the time the co-chair and I begged and pleaded her to give me a job and she said well I only have something one day a week it's not very really well paid but I suppose if you work for me one day a week, week as a researcher and work for an organisation called Women to Win one day a week as a researcher you've got three badly paid days rather than one and I thought okay I can manage on my savings to make that work for a year and again I recognise the privilege and being able to take on not very well paid work and live uh, at home which is very normal in my community. Um, So I did that for just under a year and that's when I got to learn about Parliament and I loved it. It was incredible. It was even now to this day it's been 12 years since I first walked into Parliament and I still get this incredible thrill and buzz. It's my favourite place in London and James Dudridge at the time was the co-chair of CIFID and he said to me why don't you work in my office so you have somewhere to sit Um, because peers don't get desks for staff Um, and so even though I didn't work for James he was very kind and taking me under his wing giving me guidance and advice Um, and so from him I learned about what an MP could do without actually working for one and From Anne, I learned so much. I mean, I I call her my political mum. She's the most incredible mentor and role model I could have asked for. And that was just luck, pure luck, that I ended up with her in my life. But that's when I got the love of politics. And I realised how much you can achieve in frontline politics. And I'd never seen or known that before.
0: So talk us through the decision to stand and uh, tell us about where you stood, what it was like and how you felt when you weren't successful.
2: Yes. Uh, And actually, I have to say, I think if it were up to me, I would make everybody who wants to be an MP fight an unwinnable seat first, because I think you learn so much about yourself, about campaigning, about serving a community, serving your country. I think... Um, It was the most valuable experience, not something I'd like to make a repeated habit of. (laughs) You know, I'm sure winning is more fun. Um, So Women to Win is this amazing organization. It was set up in 2005 by uh, Anne Jenkin and Theresa May, um, had a lot of support from David Cameron in the early years. And it exists, uh, and I'm still very proud of the work we do at Women to Win, but it exists in order to support women get elected To parliament because at the time it was set up in 2005 only nine percent of our mps were female Um, we're now up to about 23 ish percent but it's um slow going but i'm proud that we've done that without all women shortlists um and so in the lead up to the 2015 election because of course we knew when the election would be back then so we were able to do a lot of support and training for female candidates to help them navigate the Old Boys Network to help them navigate the barriers and challenges and biases, subconscious biases that people might have about who should be an MP and what background and skill set and attributes they needed to have. So I um, ran a training program for our female candidates um, and they were so inspirational and so amazing and Uh, Every week I would get an MP to come and help and we would do Q&A training and public speaking training so Guy Opperman actually came on board as our head of training because he was so good. Um, We used to call him the Simon Cowell of uh, public speaking Mm -hmm. because he was wonderful but brutal. and I no, went. not
1: a lot's changed.
2: <laughs> no, nothing has changed. <laughs> but you, you cannot learn more uh, than we did from him. And I went to Anne one day and said, oh, I'm really enjoying this, you know. And at that point, I'd been working for an MP for a year already. He was a member of the Treasury Select Committee. And, uh, you know, see, I love economic policy. So I knew how much good and how much of an impact you could have as an MP. And I said to Anne, oh, I think I'll stand for Parliament one day. at this point I was about 24 so I I really did mean one day and she said why not now and I kind of went well I'm 24 who would want me as a candidate she said well if you're not in the game you can't win it so you should put yourself forward now we can't be telling other women to go for it if we ourselves don't model that and I thought well okay Um, that's a good point so I put myself forward did my PAB it was December 2013 so Uh, I got my letter Jan 2014, so this is my 10-year anniversary of being on the list. Um, And they started selecting for unwinnable seats in London later that year. So I chose a short list of seats I felt connected to. Um, Dulwich and West Nord was one of my top ones, and I put myself forward for it. And I actually got to the final, and there was a very impressive candidate I was up against. Um, You know, kind of 15 years older than me, had been a councillor, I think had been in the council cabinet, and I remember feeling so much imposter syndrome, and I was so sure she would win it, but I just prepped as hard as I could. Um, Kemi had stood in the seat, the election before me. She'd given me a lot of advice and guidance. I'd, I'd never met her before, but she was just very willing to share and support, um, and then I got selected, and I remember feeling like it—you know, I'd won the lottery. Um, so I had nine months as the candidate, just under. It wasn't a straightforward campaign, because in March of that year, um, I ended up I was in Parliament working and I ended up with suddenly a really bad tummy ache and by eleven in the morning, I couldn't stand upright and I hobbled across the bridge to tommy's and um, I've always known I have polycystic ovaries, but they did some scans and they said, okay, you've got two cysts wrapped around your ovarian tissue. Um, the doctor said it was the equivalent to being kicked in the testicles repeatedly. Um, and I I can confirm it was that painful. Um, and so they said, "Oh, we need to hospitalise you until we can operate. Um, except I had a fundraiser that night for Dulwich and West Norwood, and I'd managed to get none other than Theresa May, Home Secretary, to speak on my behalf. And I think for the doctors in the room they couldn't quite understand why I cared so much but for me as a 24 year old candidate that was huge you know the home secretary was speaking for me so um, I got them to drug me up with everything they could and I discharged myself Uh, went to the fundraiser don't remember much photos of me very glassy eyed I was so high. We raised a lot of money, so it was a success. And then the next morning, I went back to hospital, had surgery, um, and I was out. I mean, it was months till I could walk again, um, and that was the March of the election year. So kind of scuppered everything I wanted to do, but I still got to do eight hustings, lots of fundraisers, lots of cabinet ministers came down. So it was just so incredible. And we did campaigns locally on education, on transport. I managed to get, you know, real shifts in attitude and, and... Um, I learned a lot and I got to do a lot of media on the topics I cared about, including social mobility. So I loved it, Um, got called to see you next Tuesday more times than I'd like to count, had people spit at me. That was the less nice bit, but people were so nice. And I knocked on a door once and a little girl opened it and she said, oh, I'm going to vote for you. And I didn't know how to break it to her that she couldn't actually vote for me. But the fact that someone who was that young saw me as a young woman who she could vote for. I thought even that was just such a privileged position for me to be in to be able to do that for the next generation of girls out there.
1: You 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 talked you talked about the women to win stuff and and I it's an organization I've got a lot of respect for because of the way I think it doesn't try to promote women at the expense of men, but to help women overcome as you if you've described it helps women to overcome barriers that might exist for them Mm -hmm. that don't exist necessarily for men but reflecting on that what do you think those barriers are what is it is it that's stopping more good women putting themselves forward and uh, and standing for parliament or even just putting themselves forward to go onto a parliamentary list in the first place
2: so it's a difficult life for anyone Mm. as an MP and I don't say that in a you know MPs deserve more sympathy than others. There are plenty of jobs out there that are incredibly difficult and stressful. Um, But I'm also on the board of the Fawcett Society, and there's a lot of research that's been done on the abuse that women, and especially ethnic minority women, face. Um, And it is incredibly scary when you receive rape threats, death threats on social media. We don't treat... Um, threats on social media, the way we treat threats in real life. I know of a candidate who's now an MP um, who, when she stood in a previous election, um, someone slashed her car tyres and daubed a swastika on the driveway of the house where she lived with her young child. We've actually just seen today an MP, Mike Freer, talking about standing down because of an arson attack on his office. And we have MPs. I remember um, an MP, she's, she's now no longer an MP, but she stood down because she said... Uh, she, it got to the point where she had to have a panic room installed in her house and wear a panic alarm on her lapel. And the reality is, as a woman, you are just more physically at risk and you do receive more threats than men. Um, I also think there's a real challenge of the way the media report female politicians. I remember a few years ago we had Nicola Sturgeon in Scotland and Theresa May as Prime Minister in the UK. I mean, two of the most powerful politicians in the country. And one of the... Newspapers ran with a photo of the two of them wearing dresses and it just said "legs it." And I thought, how awful and demeaning is that, that these women are running our country and all we can talk about is their legs or the length of their skirt. Mm. And then in addition, I think the reality is when I look at women kind of, you know, my age or thereabouts, like if you look at women in their late 20s, early 30s, mid 30s, um, the reality is women do still take on primary care responsibilities and no matter how much of a partner or feminist your your husband boyfriend is um, the reality is it's the women that have to get pregnant and the women that have to have the baby and it is a challenge if you're going back and forth to your constituency with a baby or breastfeeding or while heavily pregnant and women do it it's not to say they don't but it is a big ask to give up your private life and to think about juggling that um, but that period of your life um, when actually you could have an impact in a different way um, in, in a different role and actually I have to say that I think Women to Win has done great work because the reason I've always supported them is because we don't see men as the enemy, in fact it's the opposite, men are allies and we need to work together for the good of society and our country it's why we've always had a male MP as a co-chair, we think that's really important and we talk very much about the right person for the job, but the right person for the job isn't always a man in no. his 50s. And that's the subconscious bias we're trying to get over. I mean, I talked about behavioral economics. They've done studies to show that if you have a picture of Margaret Thatcher in a selection room, you're more likely to vote for a woman than if you didn't have a photo right. of Margaret Thatcher. I,
1: I mean, that's. I think that's the hitting on the on the issues those unconscious biases that i think some of occasionally are coming into selections where people are um are not necessarily choosing the best person they are modeling the, their selection perhaps on on a set of a set of criteria that maybe they don't even realize yeah. that they're modeling them on and sometimes it's about saying to, to more good women, look, put yourselves forward. But then it's about the, the work that you're, you're talking about to make sure that that when they're in the room, I think there's a there's a job that we need to do in in education as well, to make sure that we that those that are selecting choose the Absolutely. best possible candidates for the job, regardless of gender and ethnicity sure. and any other any other factors.
2: And then mine and Ryan's work on social mobility, like yeah. this isn't just an issue for women. When most people think about what an MP is or who their MP should be like, they often will think of a kind of university educated graduate who speaks a certain way, has a certain accent, comes from a certain place, has a certain career background. And actually, what we work about on social mobility is like how do we incorporate people from all backgrounds? And I don't think we've tackled that in politics yet because actually it's a very expensive endeavour to be a candidate. You're not paid. You don't get funding support. You have to fundraise everything yourself. You have to... I mean, I was astounded. I was 24 on a parliamentarian researcher's salary. I would have to organise fundraisers, find raffle prizes for the fundraiser, buy some raffle tickets to show I was supporting it. I mean, just raising funds for leaflets could cost me hundreds of pounds that I didn't really have.
0: Mm. Mm. I just want to challenge you, if I may, Resham, yes. uh, on on some of that so we know that women face structural challenges that men simply don't and you've highlighted the work of the Fawcett Society and I think um, we can all agree that it's harder for women to be elected Mm -hmm. to parliament than men so why are you opposed to all women shortlists when um, there isn't a level playing field to begin with wouldn't all women shortlists level it out a bit and I think of the Labour Party and I think regardless of what we think about the individual Labour MPs. They have achieved that 50-50 mm. balance. What, how, how do you respond to that?
2: Look, it's a, it's a very personal opinion. I mean, I, I fully respect the rights of people to believe that all-women shortlists would tackle the issue. I mean, I would benefit from an all-women shortlist. I just personally would hate to be in Parliament and have anyone myself included, think I'm only here because I didn't go up against a man. Um, and actually, when people talk about Labour, I think they've done fantastically well. They have some great women on their benches, and yet they've never had a female leader. We're talking about a progressive... No, to take over
1: for a few weeks at a time. Only, <laughs> only
2: and I don't say this in a tribal way. I just say this in a... I don't think all women shortlists have sorted out the problem. And when I was arguing about this with... Um, someone who's standing for the Labour Party, um, she said, but look at how many great women we have, and you wouldn't know which ones had come from all women shortlists and which ones hadn't. And to me, I think that is the problem, because you end up with a situation where, regardless of how good the woman is, there are members of the public who think she's only there because she couldn't beat a man. And I think now, when we look at Labour selections in Scotland, and we see the twinned system they have, more often than not... The first choice candidate is the man, and the second choice candidate is the woman. And I, it, it, there's no data I've seen on it, but I struggle to see how you would end up with the woman and not think, ugh, we didn't get the good person, we got the one we got stuck with. And I would hate for anyone to ever think of a female candidate like that. I'd rather we actually, as a party, put the energy into tackling those subconscious biases that exist in selection processes.
0: So, a quality of opportunity rather than a quality of outcome?
2: 100%. And if we don't get to 50 50, that's okay. If we don't have as many women, really strong, capable women, wanting to be MPs as strong, capable men, fine. But I'm very pro us, like, let's get rid of the mediocre people, whether they are men or women, and let's make sure that every person has an equal opportunity to become an MP, whether they're male or female.
1: That's an interesting point you you made earlier about the these barriers that even once you are on the the candidates list, regardless of which party you're standing for, it's not a, it's not a cheap operation. You know, no. you've got to you, you you it costs you. You don't get paid while you're doing it. You, you're spending out as well. Is that another barrier that that we can do more uh, that we can do more to support candidates? Maybe where we're looking at candidates from from lower income backgrounds, rather than where it's a gender difference.
2: Definitely. I think the spending issue and the income issue impacts, I mean, women on average earn less than men. It also impacts some of our younger candidates. And I'm not necessarily saying I want a whole bevy of 20-year-olds in Parliament. But I do think we've all seen that the political journey takes... 10 15 years on average you know you like i said i really support people fighting an unwinnable or a target before they fight a seat they win um, so if you if you want a mix of people coming into parliament you do need people to start in their 20s and 30s. So actually, we have to make it affordable. And I think, I think it was the Specky that did an article several years ago about the cost of standing for Parliament. And when you look at um, the opportunity cost of foregone earnings at work, when you look at how much you spend to be on the candidate's list to campaign around the country um, to go to selections. I mean, every seat you apply for, you need to go and visit multiple times. You need to be campaigning there. You should be, and you should look forward to that. But these things aren't cheap Um, and so every selection you go for you might be spending hundreds if not thousands of pounds just on traveling there and back multiple times forget once you're actually there and then have to um, organize things I mean I was lucky I stood the first time in a London seat so my oyster you know my travel card covered me but when I was standing in Coventry I mean the trains weren't cheap and I was lucky it was a seven-week election um, and a she's you know I now call them my Coventry parents but People I'd never met before offered me a spare room, but otherwise I'd have had to pay rent and to rent a car for seven weeks. And I did quit my job, so when I didn't win the election, I was unemployed, exhausted, and had come back to London having not earned anything, having spent hundreds of pounds, uh, and then was a bit like, oh, sugar. And I know candidates who fought in 2017 who then didn't fight 2019 because they were still paying off credit card debt. And we shouldn't be in a position where you have to become you know, indebted on your your credit card Mm -hmm. just to be able to stand because we lose really good people.
1: Yes, and we end up with with that. We're back to that stereotype of somebody with a particular career trajectory or a particular income background or whatever it is. And it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy, doesn't it? Tell us a little bit more about that 2017 election because that was a... I mean, I don't think we've had an inverted commas normal election since 2015. No, we haven't. Um, But... 2017 was particularly diff- different. Um, Prime Minister went on holiday, um, went for a walk, and came back <laughs> and decided, "Let's have an election." I mean, it was all—I t- don't think anyone saw it coming. No. So tell tell us about what where you were when you found out about the election and what happened in the. A few
2: days after that. So I actually was on a flight back too, and um, I landed in London, turned on my phone, and I had over 250 notifications, which for a very short flight from Europe is, you know, I'm a WhatsApp addict, but even that for You're me pop- was... You're
1: a popular woman, <laughs> but I mean, 250 <laughs> notifications well, is a lot. Yeah,
2: that's not my normal... And it was just, you know, my WhatsApp groups with all the candidates was going crazy. I had so many friends messaging, saying, oh my God, are you standing, are you standing? Awkward situation was I was about to start a new job. And I wasn't sure what to do. And I started the job, um, and every time my phone rang, I was, you know, like, the jumpiest person. I'd, like, jump up and, you know, check who it was. Um, And nothing was happening. And then I finally got a call saying, would you like to fight Liz Kendall in, I can't remember which Leicester seat, but Leicester something. Mm. Um, And I said, no, I can't, because the majority was, I think, eight and a half thousand. I was like, I'll never overturn that, but you'll want me to fight it like a target seat, and I can't quit my job and move to Leicester for something I cannot win. Um, two days later um, oh and actually after that conversation they said well it's Lester or nothing and I said well then I'll have to say nothing because I, I cannot do that um, two days later it's my birthday and my now husband then boyfriend who had been incredibly supportive in 2015 also um, he met me near my office taking me out for a quick lunch and it was probably the worst birthday lunch ever because we didn't do any eating Um, but I got a phone call and and it was I think the field agent for the Midlands and he said I've seen your CV would you like to come and interview for Coventry Northwest and I'm like elbowing my boyfriend so Praz is quickly googling and he's like say yes say yes it looks winnable. Um, So I said yes this is a Thursday and they said okay great selections on Saturday. I'd never been to Coventry at this point. The closest I'd been, my twin sister, um, who also campaigned every Saturday in my 2015 election, she'll kill me if I don't say that, as did my parents. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm very lucky, and I, I recognise that as a candidate, to have so much familial support around me. Um, but the closest I'd been was my twin sister went to Warwick. So I visited Warwick, but but not actually Coventry. So I'm, I'm you know, kind of like, OK, we'll come. Except we'd committed, I'd committed to speaking at Durham University the next night. And I didn't want to cancel. I'm a big believer that you don't cancel on events unless you literally cannot um, move or, you know, you're in hospital. So my boyfriend and I go up to Durham. He's writing my speech for the Durham Union. I'm writing my speech for the Coventry selection that's happening the next day. We deliver everything, uh, you know, we go to Durham Union, I do my speech, we go back to the hotel, we stay up till four in the morning, writing out um, what we're going to do for Coventry, my selection, researching all the local issues, and the next day we take a train from Durham to London to Coventry. Obviously the trains are delayed, so I turn up at my selection late, so I'm like panicked, flustered, thinking this is never going to happen. I've been told that they hate Londoners, I didn't know whether that was true or not, but, you know... (laughs) wasn't sure how that was going to go down Um, and I walked into the room and I did my speech and I thought I'm up against local councillor here they're definitely going to pick him and they decided it was me and and so it was a bank holiday Uh, I went into work on the Tuesday morning and I said I'm really really sorry because I desperately had wanted this job I just wanted to be an MP more I said I'm so sorry I have to quit and they said okay can you finish the week and I said no I'm sorry I can finish the day Um, I'm moving to Coventry tomorrow and they kind of looked really shocked and you know I've never had more jokes about being sent to Coventry than I did during that um, seven week campaign Um, but the next morning full suitcase I turn up at number 10 we'd all been invited to have photos with the prime minister and I remember, uh, I don't think Eddie Hughes will mind me saying this, obviously the MP, uh, Eddie Hughes, he was a candidate as well. He's standing behind me and I have a full suitcase, five blazers, because I'm literally about to take the train to move to Coventry. And he goes, bloody hell, Resh, I didn't know we were supposed to bring outfit changes. <laughs> so all these other candidates looking panicked that I'm outfit changing to meet Theresa May. And that was it. I go up to Coventry. Um, it was a very tightly run election. I was two to one odds on favourite to win. I actually found out about our social care policy on the doorstep because i hadn't gone to the campaign launch um and someone said you want to take my bloody home away and i was like excuse me do i um (laughs) i'm thinking god i need to google this manifesto quickly and um i went from two to one odds on favorite to win to election night where at two in the morning my campaign manager thought it was best that i wasn't in the room for the count which i really wanted to be but she said no you'll distract us and we need to be sure of every vote turns out we didn't need to be sure of every vote because actually we doubled jeffrey robinson's majority so it wasn't even close um and yeah cap in hand very sore legged and tired and a bit miserable i had to go back to my old job and ask them very awkwardly if they would consider taking me back and luckily for me they did so thank you very much
0: what about um the alternative to this so you've you've done a good job perhaps unintentionally of listing all the reasons why anyone with any sense of (laughs) wanting to do something else wouldn't do this Uh because it sounds awful uh, and Stuart and I have also been through it. So, yeah, yeah. so we, we're, we're, we're with you, you know, psychologically. We know why you do it. Yeah. But for those who are a bit on the fence, I mean, is there another path to having an impact in politics that doesn't demand all these sacrifices, all this um, family strain, financial worry? And if there is, would you explore that in the future? I mean, we hope very much that you're cabinet minister, never mind an MP, but <laughs> have you ever considered that alternative path?
2: Yeah, I mean, look, I... I do, I think, have to give the positive plug on frontline politics because, yes, it comes with sacrifices and difficulties and challenges, but it is the most incredible job in the world. Um, you know, you as an MP, it's like having a magic wand. There is no other job in the, in the country that you can do where you can help change an individual person's life and change the country for the better. You can meet uh, experts on matters you care about. Um, you can, if you're on a select committee, you can start inquiries. You get to question people. I mean, I, was, I gave evidence to the Treasury Select Committee last June and it was incredible. I was sitting there trying not to sweat because I was sitting next to Lord Willett's two brains and you think of all the people to have to give evidence next to you, like the man with two brains is not the one. Um, but in between the panic, I was looking, thinking how lucky these people are to just call anyone they want to before them to do inquiries on the good of the country. Um, when I worked in Parliament uh, for the MP Brooks, he's now doing incredible work in Ukraine, um, but when I worked for him, we had a call from someone who said, oh, my um, my son needs heart surgery, he's really young, and I, he's crying on the phone to me. He's like, I can't afford to keep taking him to Great Ormond Street because um, the train tickets are so expensive, I don't have a car, and he was like, I think my son will die because I can't manage it. And it took a week of calls and negotiations and obviously um, lots of hard work. But we managed to get him free NHS transport until his son was old enough to have the surgery. And when we called him to tell him, he said, you've saved my son's life. He'll never forget that. And I've never forgotten that. It's been over a decade. But, you know, with just a little bit of effort that title had the impact of being able to give someone who needed it the support and the help that will mean their child will live and that child will be healthy. Um, And then you get to work on national policy. So I think it's a really great thing. And I would love more women, more ethnic minority people, more people from diverse backgrounds to go for it. Um, But you know, you've talked about in, in the very generous introduction you gave me about the public appointment. So the Social Mobility Commission, and I think that's a fantastic way of creating good in the world. The upside is you're not a frontline politician, so you get your private life, um, you don't get the kind of challenges with the media or with social media. The downside is you're, you're, you're doing the advising, you're doing the advocating, you're holding the government to account, but you're not the final decision maker. So there are pros and cons, but there are so many ways to make a positive contribution in the political world that don't have to be frontline politics, and I couldn't recommend it more highly.
1: Well, that's a fantastic place, I think, to to end. Apart from for one question, because we're absolutely sure that that one day soon you will be uh, in the House of Commons. Let's jump forward a few years, but uh, Ryan's been made Prime Minister. You've been made Prime uh, Minister, Stuart. Uh, I'm your what? chief advisor. Well. <laughs> <laughs> as long as you both remember, we were friends a long time absolutely. before, and we and and they call we call up and say to you, Resham. Haven't started the reshuffle yet. Name me the job that you want, and I'll build the cabinet around you. What's your first reaction? What's the job that you really want?
2: Chancellor.
0: Okay. That is a great answer. That's May a great answer. answer. Yeah. I said yeah. Without any hesitation absolutely. at all, you yeah. uh, um,
1: absolutely. And I'm sure uh, I'm sure you would do a fantastic job because you you you've talked really um, really strongly about that importance of sense important sense of of why you're doing it in the first place, of wanting to make a difference. and I think it's a a unique part of our constitutional system that allows you to be both a local advocate and a national policymaker uh, in one job. Um, So I'm absolutely sure that we will see you uh, not only in uh, the House of Commons, but almost certainly in the Cabinet before long. Um, resham, thank you very much for joining us.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Thank I you. also look forward to you both being Prime Minister. <laughs> At we'll the same the time. <laughs> we'll the yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there we
1: thank you so
0: much.
2: Pleasure.
1: So, Stuart, what did you think of Resham? Well, I think, as I said um, just before um, we, we finished up there, that resham has got a really, really clear sense of... Why she's going into this, and and similar to others that, that we've spoken to um, for the series, and I think that's that's really a key to it. I mean, it's really really clear, um, an extremely bright person who's got so much to offer, whatever um, whatever industry or sector they went into. Of of many many people I know, Resham, Resham is somebody that could be earning an awful lot of money doing something that i'm sure she'd get a lot of job satisfaction from but wouldn't have that sense of service and she's foregone that in order to, to really make a difference and she's doing that already through uh, through some of those advisory boards and public appointments that she's got um but i think that sense of where i can make the biggest difference is being on those green leather benches uh, and really contributing both to individual constituency and to national policy Um, And I think, you know, when she does go into Parliament, because it is absolutely a when, I'm sure of that, when she does go into Parliament, the country will be better off.
0: Yeah, I completely agree. And the thing that came out for me most of all was this resilience thing again, which we um, picked up when we interviewed Jay uh, last week. But it was brutal for her in 2015 Mm. and 17. And and, and you and I have have gone Mm. through this, so, so we know what it's like. But to go through it twice, to go through it as a young woman... Uh, and let's remember the 2015-2017 elections were, were pretty rough mm-hmm. um, so so 19 wasn't easy either. no it wasn't no it was, yeah, it was absolutely <laughs> right so you know she's got the uh, she's got the minerals for sure
1: yeah um, and next week we've got a, a very different guest
0: yes we've got Aliona Halivko who is a member of the CGP advisory council but is also the managing director of the Henry Jackson Society very important think tank And was a Member of Parliament in Ukraine. And I'm sure she won't mind me saying this, but her brother is on the front line at the moment. Um, So she's a fascinating individual. And um, I encourage everyone listening to make sure they tune into that. It will be really interesting.
1: That's coming up next week. So for now, thanks very much. Thank you.